Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, in hand and turn again to the book of Daniel. We are in chapter 9, and after today, we'll be three quarters of the way through our journey through the book of Daniel. We have not been sprinting through Daniel. It's been more of a brisk walk, I think, but uh, we're making our way through the 12 chapters. I do want to take a little more time here in chapter 9, because here I think we find the secret sauce of what made Daniel such a great man and believer. And I say that with my tongue firmly in my cheek because the secret of Daniel's ministry was not a secret at all. In fact, like all the great men and women of the Bible that God used for his glory, he was committed to two things, God's word and prayer. And I would say in Daniel's case in that order because we saw last Sunday that Daniel's prayer life was informed by the scriptures. He was reading, remember, the book of Jeremiah. And there in the book of Jeremiah, he saw God's promise that this captivity was going to last 70 years. And he was already, by his calculations, in year 67. And so uh, he believed they were only three more years. And so rather than throwing a party, he had a prayer meeting with himself and with God. And he just begged God to forgive his people and himself of their sinfulness and to do what he'd already promised to do. You see, Daniel's prayer life was already in existence. It didn't wait for an emergency. There would not be anything particularly admirable about Daniel if he only prayed in emergencies. He did. Remember in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he issued a decree that someone in the land had to tell him his dream and interpret it or everyone was going to die. And so Daniel got with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they prayed and God answered that prayer, gave him the interpretation. So he saved hundreds if not thousands of lives that way in that emergency. Another emergency we saw back in chapter six when Darius the Mede had uh, ascended the throne of the Medo-Persian empire and um, he passed a law that you could only pray to him for a month. And if you did otherwise, you'd be thrown to the lions. And of course, uh, again, Daniel prayed, but he didn't change his lifestyle at all. Scripture says in Daniel 6.10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, that is the king's decree, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber towards Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did a four time. <laughs> he just kept doing what he always did. He prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem, the, the holy city. Now everybody prays in emergencies. You know the phrase, there's no atheist in foxholes. And that's true. But Daniel prayed all the time. So here in chapter nine, Daniel is praying for his nation. Again, he'd read in the book of Jeremiah that God uh, had issued 70 years uh, and then freedom. And, and so he comes now to verse three in chapter 19, his response to reading that verse. He says, so I gave myself attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Now, this was our message last Sunday, wasn't it? How to intercede for a nation in crisis. And Daniel really prayed for about three things. He prayed for the people, his people, Israel. 
He prayed for forgiveness and he prayed for the city of Jerusalem. And so that's how you intercede. First of all, we saw that he came to terms with his own helplessness. He said, I can't do anything about this circumstance and neither can my people. If we could have, we'd already done it in 67 years, but here we stand. And then he declared God's faithfulness. He said, God, in the past, you took care of my ancestors. You brought them out of Egypt. You brought them out, out through the wilderness for 40 years and into the promised land. You met all their needs. And then he confessed our sinfulness, he said. He used the plural pronoun, including himself. He didn't say their sinfulness. He said our sinfulness. We have done it, he said. And he confessed. And then after all that, he appealed to God to answer his prayer based on God's mercifulness. He didn't say, God, because I'm such a great guy, will you answer my prayer? He said, despite the fact that I'm a sinner, will you do this for your namesake? Now, today we come to the answer to the prayer, beginning in verse 20 here in Daniel 9. Let's read now. Now, while I was speaking, this is Daniel. Now, I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. And at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern from this issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And to the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now, the first thing we see in verse 20 is a heavenly visitor. This angel, Gabriel, who we've already seen in a previous chapter, who showed up. When Daniel was in that vision beside the Ulai Canal, and he gave the interpretation of that ram and goat. He says, now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, that's very important. God answered Daniel's prayer before he even said, amen. While I was praying, he said, Gabriel came. And so that begs a question. I've pondered this all week long. Why was Daniel so effective in prayer? You know, Daniel was a great man. He was respected by his peers. He lived through several different empires and administrations. And every time he was elevated to higher and higher office, he was universally respected in the kingdom. And he had a 70 year plus career, a guy we could look up to and admire. But I suspect if we could find Daniel's gravestone and throw an epitaph on it, it would read, here lies a man of prayer. 
That's what we most remember Daniel for is his prayer life. So why was Daniel's prayer life so effective? That's a positive way of phrasing that. I think for at least three reasons. One, he prayed according to the will of God revealed in scripture. That's how we ought to pray. Read what God has said about himself and his plan and pray that back to him. And then you know you're in his will. People sometimes pray things that God has explicitly said are not in his will. I've known people who were married praying that God would give them another mate. We know that's not in his will. The Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. It tells us to keep our promises faithfully. So we don't need to waste our breath on those kind of prayers. Secondly, he was humble. He recognized he was undeserving of God's answers. And so he prayed appealing to God's mercy and not his goodness. And then thirdly, he prayed ultimately for God's glory. I think that's the real secret. Look what he says. I was praying in behalf of the holy mountain of God. I think what he means there is all of God's attributes, who he is, what he's like that's revealed in scripture. I want God's glory more than I want my way. Now that's one way of asking why was Daniel so effective? But the truth is the way most of us ask this question is why are my prayers not so effective? And Sometimes I think all of us would have to admit, we feel like our prayers aren't getting past the ceiling. Well, the Bible tells us there's two primary reasons why our prayers are ineffective. Number one is prayerlessness. That is we fail to pray or we don't pray with earnestness. And the second is we pray with a wrong motivation. That is we want things for ourselves, make my life better and more comfortable. And it's really a selfish kind of praying. James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Daniel was not praying for himself. He was an old man. He knew he'd never make it back to Jerusalem. He was praying for his descendants, for those who would come after him, that God would restore the nation, that he would rebuild the walls and reestablish temple worship. But God hears his prayer and he responds by sending the angel Gabriel, verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Now, there's a lot in that one verse. There's a couple things you'll miss if you don't look real closely. He says that he was in extreme weariness as he was praying. Have you ever been so burdened by prayer that it just wears you out? This is what Daniel, he had been living with this for several years, this knowledge that, that God had said only 70 years. And, and so he's pouring his heart out to God and it wears him out. Earnestness, zeal in prayer is what we see here. But there's this little detail that he was doing so about the time of the evening offering. That tells us a lot about Daniel. He had been away from Jerusalem for 67 years. He's in his 80s. He left there as a teenager. But he still counts time according to the temple sacrifices. Every day, he would, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice. Remember in Jerusalem, they had a morning and an evening sacrifice for the sins of the people. Because how many of us have gone from breakfast to dinner without sinning? And so they would bring these lambs at three o'clock and the priest would put his hands on it and then they would kill the lamb. And they did this day after day after day because the people kept sinning day after day after day. And someone has surmised, and I think they're probably right, that apparently 
Three o'clock in the afternoon was Daniel's habit of confessing his sins every day. By the way, I think it'd be good for us to confess our sins daily, don't you? This is, I think, what Jesus was getting at when he gathered with his disciples in the upper room the night of his arrest. Remember, he got down on his knees at the basin of water, began to wash the dust off of their feet and got to Peter. Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. This is embarrassing. Jesus said, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. And so Peter, wanting everything to do with Christ, said, well, just dump it over my head. <laughs> Give me a bath thoroughly. And Jesus says, he that has had a bath doesn't need another bath. He just needs to have his feet washed. And we take that to mean that when we're born again, as these who were baptized today gave testimony of, we don't have to get resaved every time we sin, do we? But to maintain intimacy and fellowship with our holy God, we have to have regular times of confession. That's what John meant when he says, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin. And the Greek says, and keep on perpetually cleansing us of all unrighteousness. And apparently Daniel did that day after day at the same time of day, three o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifices. Now, Gabriel, Daniel calls him the man Gabriel, not because he was an angel. We know that he was in that he appeared in the form of a man, just as he did in that previous vision. And Gabriel speaks to Daniel and says, I've been sent by God with the message. But before he gives him the message, he tells him why he's giving the message. He says, this message is to give you insight with understanding. Insight means God's going to tell you what he's going to do in the future. And understanding is he's going to tell you why he's going to do it. Now, if you ever wonder why God didn't tell you what he's doing and why he's doing it, he doesn't often do that, does he? In fact, in my experience, he very rarely does that. That's why we have faith. But sometimes he graciously even tells us what he's doing and why he's doing it. In the case of Daniel, he does. And that brings us to verse 33, this revealing proclamation. He says, at the beginning of your supplications, that is, the second you started praying, Daniel, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you that you are highly esteemed to give to the message and to gain understanding of the vision. I read that verse over and over this week to see if it really said what it sounded like it said. Gabriel is saying to Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Well, we could say, of course he was highly esteemed. He was a high official in the land, probably had a nice house and nice clothing and looked up to in the community. His friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surely respected him. Even the kings of the land respected him. Sure, he's highly esteemed. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think what he's saying is, Daniel, you are highly regarded in heaven. What a compliment. In fact, I think there's only one similar to it in the whole Bible. It's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He said, there's never been one greater than John the Baptist born among women. And Daniel certainly is, is a close second in the compliment when he says, Daniel, you're highly regarded in, in heaven. You're highly esteemed. And so that begs the question, what causes heaven to esteem a person? Well, we know it's not degrees or titles or possessions. Because the Bible clearly teaches God's not a respecter of persons, right? All that stuff is meaningless in heaven. But what the Bible teaches is that what causes a person to be esteemed in heaven is one thing, obedience, faithfulness. 
This is what the Apostle Paul said, remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Remember in the church at Corinth, there was this debate about who deserved the most honor as a preacher and apostle. And some says, well, I follow Paul and others Apollos and some Peter. Paul says, look, let's put an end to this right now. Here's how to think about us. Two ways. One, as slaves of Jesus and two, as stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, and what is required of a servant, but that he is found faithful. That is, he does what he's told to do. That is how to be esteemed in heaven is to obey God. And Daniel obeyed God. Daniel was thought of highly by his supervisors, kings and princes. He was also regarded by his father in heaven. Now we have to be very careful here. We're limited as humans in what we can perceive with our senses about other people. But you know, we've had some very godly men and women go to be with the Lord in the last few weeks, haven't we? And in my heart, I believe they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But that's God's to say and not me. He knows all of our hearts. But that ought to be every ambition of every Christian. If we view ourselves as servants of God and servants only, and the only thing a servant wants to hear at the end of his service is, well done. You know, people are motivated by different things. Some people are motivated by money. That's how the business world works, right? If you get a job and work really hard and do well at it, they'll reward you by giving you a harder job, <laughs> but hopefully with more money and more benefits. And that they think and bonuses. And those are the things that keep you working hard for the company. But some people are motivated by praise. They like their peers to recognize them and give them trophies and plaques. Daniel was motivated by the glory of God. That's what got him up in the morning. That's what drove him to his knees three times a day in prayer. He wanted the fame and the renown of Jehovah. And so because of that, because God knew his heart, he said, you are highly esteemed and I'm going to give you understanding of the future. Well, speaking of that, you ready for this? Verse 24, we're going to get in some deep weeds, but I think it's worth our while. Verse 24, 70 weeks, this is Gabriel declaring what's going to happen in the future to Israel. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Who are Daniel's people? Israelites, Jews. What is Daniel's holy city? It's not Babylon, it's Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now I call this a mysterious declaration and I mean it. In fact, historically, these verses, 24 through the end of the chapter, have been some of the most debated in biblical history. So let's break it down into some bite-sized portions. The first thing we see here is this 70 weeks. Literally, it says 77s. And from the context, we know these are 70 sevens of years and not days. So 70 times seven is 490. So he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to Israel and to Jerusalem in a period carved out of history of 490 years. He says, six things are going to happen. Number one, he says, there's going to be a finishing of transgression, an end of sins, an atonement for iniquity. There's going to be an Incoming everlasting righteousness, there's going to be an end of vision and prophecy, and then finally, there's going to be an anointing of the most holy place. 
Now the first three we can group in one category. It's God's dealing with sin. We know that the world is in the mess it's in because of sin's entrance to the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And so God in Genesis chapter three curses the earth and the curse passes on Adam and Eve and all of their descendants and we are born with a death sentence, aren't we? And all the other suffering and pain and sickness in the world and violence, we can trace back to that sin. And so he says, I'm going to deal with all that sin once and for all. Now, let me ask you a question, Christian. Where in history did God deal ultimately with sin? At the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, I believe, that within the next 490 years, the Messiah is going to come and he is going to deal with sin once and for all. In fact, the third thing he says he's going to do, he's going to cover iniquity. And do you know what the New Testament word for covering is? It's atonement. He's going to make atonement for sin. He doesn't pretend our sin is, is not existent. He deals with it. Remember we said last week, he's both merciful and just. And at the cross, his mercy and justice come together without one doing violence to the other. So that's the first three. Those have already happened from our perspective. In Daniel's perspective, it was still 500 years in the future. But from our perspective, it's 2,000 years in the rearview mirror. We look back in history towards the cross. But the final three things that are going to happen in this 490-year period, I believe, are yet to happen. He says there's going to become everlasting righteousness. Let me ask you a question. Do we live in a world of everlasting righteousness? Not last I checked. He says there's going to be an end of vision and prophecy. Why will there be no more need of vision and prophecy when Jesus returns for his church? Because the Bible says we'll know as we're known. We'll live in the very presence of God all the time. We won't need to, him to tell us what's going to happen because we'll be experiencing it. And then thirdly, he says he's going to anoint the most holy place, literally the holy of holies. And do you know that when the Greeks desecrated the temple... And uh, we know certainly when um, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem leading up to the Babylonian captivity, uh, there was a ceasing of sacrifices. The Holy of Holies was the place on the Day of Atonement that the high priest would go in once a year and offer sacrifice, sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat for the sins of the people. And, and ultimately that came to an end as we'll see in a moment historically but he says there's going to be a reestablishing of that somewhere in the future. Now, keep all that close by. We're going to come back to it. Now, the fourth point, beginning in verse 25, we see an encouraging summation. That's a lot of material. But in verse 25 to 27, he summarizes the explanation. He says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, what is 62 plus seven? That's 69. So we're still missing one week, aren't we? Hmm. It will be built again with plaza and moat. That is Jerusalem. It's now in ruins. He says, your prayers have been heard, Daniel. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem with plazas and moats and walls, and it's going to be restored. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So now you've got two characters in the future. 
You've got Messiah, the prince. We know who that is. That's Jesus. And then you've got his opposition, which is called the prince who is to come. So the key to this passage is who's that person? And I believe it to be the Antichrist. I believe it to be the same person that's described in a previous vision as the boastful horn. Do you remember? The four beasts that emerged from the tumultuous sea, the fourth of which was an indescribable monster with ten horns, which was the Roman Empire. And in the middle of those ten horns, a little horn emerged and displaced three, and it had a face like a man and a big mouth. And it was boasting. And it did great harm to God's people. And I think this is one and the same person, this prince who is to come. But know what it says. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. It doesn't say the prince will destroy the city and sanctuary. The people of the prince, that is the Romans. And its end will come with a flood. That's not a flood of water. That's a flood of, of violence. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, here's the summary of the message. Remember what he said. I'm giving you a slice of history that is 490 years long, divided into three subcategories. There's a period of seven weeks, which is seven, 70, uh, excuse me, seven times seven, which is 49 years. There's a second category, which is 62 weeks, which is add the, those two groups together and you come up with 483 weeks. We're still seven weeks short, aren't we? And that really is where the rub comes. Remember I said that this is a passage that's caused great controversy and debate. The first two sections are pretty much universally agreed upon among evangelicals. That is, that first 49 years was the time in which Artaxerxes issued a decree for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the wall. And almost every Baptist has uh, gone verse by verse through Nehemiah, if you've ever been in a building campaign. That's what Baptist preachers use to motivate you to give. And so, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah came shortly after Daniel. It says, it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And so the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. And so Daniel said, if I know when this 490 years begins, then I can calculate when it ends. And so Gabriel tells him it begins at the issue of the decree from a king, which by the way, is still years in the future, to go back and build Jerusalem. And so apparently Daniel dies and the 70 years comes and goes, but the return to Jerusalem was like them coming to Babylon. It didn't happen all at once, it happened in waves. There were at least three waves of people who slowly made their way back to Jerusalem, but the city still was a mess. The walls were in shambles and the temple was a wreck. And, and word came back to Daniel from his brother of what was going on down there. And it just broke his heart. 
He wanted to see God's prophecy fulfilled. And so he, he goes in to King Artaxerxes and he, he, you're supposed to have a smile on your face when you're in your presence of the king. And he didn't. And Artaxerxes took note and he said, what's wrong with you today, Nehemiah? You're usually chipper. He says, my, my heart's heavy. Just gotten word of what's going on down in Jerusalem and just makes me heart sick. And he said, what do you want? He says, I want to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And you know what this pagan king does? He says, I'll let you go and I'll pay to do it. He gave him a script with his name on it, sealed up. And anybody that gave him any problems says, I'm here on king's business. And he went to the king's forest and he said, cut down any tree you want. Get all the lumber you need, all the materials you need. And so he brings that back. And you know the story of Nehemiah, just to make it real short. They rebuilt the city, rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple. It was a great victory for the Lord's people. And that happened in a 49-year period from the issuing of the decree, which, by the way, we know exactly what day it was, March 14th, 445 B.C. And so fast forward 49 years, and you come to 396 B.C. Do you know when the Old Testament canon ended with the ministry of Malachi? 396 B.C. And so we enter now into that next group of years, the 62 sevens. And that's the period from 396 B.C. until the coming of Messiah the Prince. And do you know what day the Lord Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey? Exactly that time period. And so here we see the Lord is sovereign. It happened just like he said it would. But that's only 69 weeks. What about that 70th week? Go back now and look what it says Verse 26, then after, note that, not during, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So the 62 weeks ended with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And after that, the Messiah was cut off. Now, what does it mean to be cut off? He was killed. In fact, Isaiah used that same expression when he was speaking of the suffering servant. He'll be cut off from the land of the living. And he was at the cross, wasn't he? He literally died. And then what's going to happen after that? doesn't say how many years after that. It just says after that. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. didn't say the prince, who I believe to be the Antichrist, who's yet to come, but the people of the prince. So what empire does the Antichrist emerge from that boastful home? The Romans. And so who are the people of the prince? It's the Romans. He's saying that after the Messiah is killed... A period of time that's not told how much it is passes and then the city of Jerusalem is going to be once again destroyed and the temple is going to be decimated. Did that happen? Let me ask you, how many of you have been to the Holy Land? Raise your hand. Do you have your pictures of the temple you could share with us? You don't because the temple doesn't exist. Because in 70 AD, a Roman general named Titus Vespasian swept in Jerusalem and thoroughly destroyed the city and killed, are you ready for this? One million Jews, many of them by crucifixion. He thoroughly decimated the holy city of God, desecrated the temple and shut down temple worship and it has not existed to this day. The only thing left of the temple mount 
There's a mosque on it right now, which causes great pain for the Jewish people. So here's where the controversy lies. The question really is, what about Israel? You see, our, our Christian friends who are amillennialist or, or preterist is an, another name. They say that in 70 AD, God says, I'm done with Israel. And I'm replacing Israel with the church in my economy. And you can sort of sympathize with, with Christians who believe that for 2,000 years because what he says here is going to happen in the end, in the seventh week, verse 27, that, that this prince that is to come, this enemy of Christ, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. He's saying he's going to make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel for one week. And halfway through that week of years, in the third and a half year, he's going to violate that peace treaty and they're going to recognize him as their enemy. And he's going to wreak havoc on the nation of Israel. But guess what? Since 70 AD, the nation of Israel has not existed. And so many of our ancestors who believe the Bible to be true and trustworthy say, well, Israel must have been replaced by the church. And then came 1948. Some of you remember it, don't you? When after World War II, the nation of Israel was reestablished. And so now it's possible for this to be a literal prophecy, which I believe that it is. And so the question is, what about Israel? I believe is answered in the book of Romans when Paul asked the rhetorical question, has Israel, has, has, has Judah fallen so never to get up again? And he answers, no. And he teaches that one day there's going to be a great ingathering of Jewish people who will recognize their Messiah. And I believe that is still yet to come. And I'm a person who believes that uh, Revelation teaches there's going to be a literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And so if you want to get into the differences of opinion between Christians about eschatology, we'll do that another time. We've got seven minutes left today. But... Um, this past summer, I did a 12-week sermon series, not really a sermon, just a teaching series on systematic theology. And the very last lesson is on eschatology. It's about an hour long. If you go listen to that, it will explain the differences in the three primary views in the church of the end times. And they are amillennialism, which says there's no such thing as a thousand-year reign. There's a millennialism, a premillennialism that says we're living in the time before that thousand-year reign. And then there's post-millennialism, which was very popular in the 1700s, 1800s, which says that the world is going to get better and better until it's so good, Jesus is going to want to come live with us. Well, that was popular at a period where scientific advancement and hospitals were being built and people were learning new things and things seemed like things were getting better on the world. And then came World War I and World War II and the Vietnam War and you don't hear much about that anymore. And so... Um, I'm a person that believes in, in the, the literal thousand-year reign because I believe God is not done with the nation of Israel yet. Not because they've repented, but because of what Daniel prayed, because you're a merciful God. God said, I, I'm going to do this. And I believe that he ultimately will bring in the nation of Israel. Now, should this divide us? I think not. Our Baptist faith and message of 2000 is our adopted doctrinal position here at First Baptist Keller. And there's an article, Article 10 on the Baptist faith and message called Last Things. 
and you'd think it would be 28 pages long. It's two sentences long. It basically says this, God who is wise and sovereign will one day bring an end to the world, period. <laughs> and it'll be good when he does. And so we Baptists don't have a eschatological system in which we require everyone to fall into. We just say this, if you believe that Jesus is returning for his church, you can be a Baptist. But within that, there are subgroupings. And I think it's important that we understand what the Bible is saying here. So, so basically in summary, here's what I believe this prophecy teaches us, okay? 490 years of history from Artaxerxes' decree. The first 49 years, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. That happened, didn't it? And then the New Testament, or that intertestamental period between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew for several hundred years. Jesus comes through in his triumphal entry into the eastern gate of Jerusalem. That ends the 69th week. After the 69th week, now we have a gap period of we don't know how long. Remember I said that the Old Testament prophets looked forward at history and they just saw one big mountain peak called the coming of Messiah. But when we got to the coming of Messiah, now we can see past it and see there's another mountain peak called his second coming. And in between is this valley called the age of grace in which we live. And probably Daniel and the other prophets didn't fully comprehend that. Remember that God's revelation is progressive, gets clear as, as history goes on. And now we are awaiting the fulfilled promise of Jesus in John 14 when he said to his disciples, I'm going away for you to prepare a place and one day I'm coming again that where I am you can be also. And the apostles believed that. And that's why they were willing to give their lives for that. And they lived every day as if today could be the day of Christ's return. And so that last seven years is still in the future. So what should we take away from Daniel 17, that, that we can impress our friends with our knowledge of history? I don't think that's it. I, th I think there's at least five things. Because remember I said when we started the study of, of Daniel that I believe that God gave us these eschatological passages like Daniel and Revelation, not to confound us and confuse us and divide us, but to encourage us. And there's five things that I think the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 19, encouraged Christians to do. Number one, is to pray for our nation. That's what Daniel did. Three times a day he went down on his knees and prayed for his people. Not for himself, for his descendants and those who would come after him, that they'd come back to God. Secondly, there's an encouragement to pray selflessly. Remember I said that most of our prayer seems to be about us, my comfort, my needs. Pray selflessly. And then there's this encouragement that God is sovereign. I think that's the ultimate point. It's bad. We shouldn't be Pollyannish and pretend it's not bad in the world. It's terrible. Getting worse all the time. But we know how it ends, don't we? That's what the Bible says of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. He was able to endure the shame of the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. He believed the promises of the Father that on the other side of suffering there is glory. This is what Daniel's teaching us. On the other side, there's glory. There's this encouragement then that God hears our prayers and not one is wasted. You know what the book of Revelation pictures our prayer life as being gathered in a great basin. 
that God hears every one of the prayers of the saints. So if you pray in the will and the word of God, rest assured that even though it doesn't seem like it or feel like it, God has heard your prayer. And in many cases has sent the answer to that prayer before you say your amen. And that ultimately is our encouragement to keep on serving. Keep on praying. The Bible says those that persevere to the end will be saved. Don't stop praying, Christian. Don't stop praying for your lost children or grandchildren. Don't stop serving him with your gifts. Don't get to a point where you said, I'm tired, I'm sitting down. Daniel never did. To the day he died, he sought the Lord's glory with all of his heart and he was highly esteemed in heaven. Make the ambition of your heart and your life Whatever capacity the Lord gives you, think of yourself as a servant and a slave of Christ with the ambition to hear at the end of your days, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you that even though this is a difficult passage, it's part of your canon of scripture. It's true. It's trustworthy. Help us to understand it more clearly as we study it. Father, I thank you that what is very obvious is your sovereign. Nothing that happens in the world overwhelms you or surprises you. All of human history is playing out just as you foreordained it. Father, that encourages my heart and the life of every Christian to know that even though it's bad now, that joy will come in the morning. You win. The church wins. And Father, ultimately you rule and reign forever having put all your enemies under your feet. Lord, we long for that day. And so we say what Christians have been saying for 2,000 years, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, Visit us online at fbckeller.org.